it's not all dark you know otherwise we wouldn't be grieving if there wasn't some some beauty in the in the loss Welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics, with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. We are partnered with StorySmith Books in Bristol, who are helping us to host thinkers in Bristol and beyond. If you would like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com and they're open locally for click and collect and worldwide for delivery. In today's episode of Tender Buttons, we welcome the writer Kerry Needocherty. Kerry Needocherty was born in Derry on the Irish border in the 80s during the Troubles to Catholic and Protestant parents. Her debut, Thin Places is a breathtakingly powerful weaving of memoir, history, folklore and nature writing. Wrought with poverty and violence, yet searching for the possibility of another world, through a deeper kinship with both the human and the non-human, through a return to the Irish language and a richer communion with landscape than the one imposed on her by the trauma of her childhood. It searches for beauty and hope despite the increasing danger wrought by hardening nationalisms in the age of Brexit. In his review for Caught by the River, Will Burns says, It is a book which becomes its own proof against the hopelessness it describes, and it is ultimately a true affirmation of life in all its horror and beauty. Hi Kerry Nidokati, welcome to Tender Buttons. Hi, thank you both for having me. It's such a lovely thing to do. We were wondering if um, we could start our discussion with a reading from the start of Thin Places. Absolutely. Through the lifting mist, Ballycastle, in the north of Ireland, comes into view only just. One moment the coastline is there and then it isn't. It is a fleeting and flighty thing today, the outline of that other place across the sea and border from me. There are times at which, under certain conditions, Scotland can be seen from where I am standing, as clear as if it were right there in front of you, as if you could hold it tenderly inside your own salty, shaky hands. Today is not one of those days. The only land that I can see from here is still in Ireland, across an invisible border. Parts of both its sides are held in place by the ancient, changeable and wild Atlantic in front of me. This border, unseen, hand-drawn by man and for him alone too, has been the thread that has run through my life. A ghost vein on the map of my insides. It is a line that is political, physical, economical and geographical, yet it is a line I have never once set eyes upon. This invisible line, a border that skims the water I have just emerged from as though it were a dragonfly, has been the cause of such sorrow and suffering, such trauma and loss, that I ran from its curves and coursing flow at the very first chance I got. 
it's really beautiful to hear it read aloud as well um and kind of feel like that passage captures so much of like the poetry and rawness of what's happening and we could talk probably for hours just about that passage alone but to start with I guess it makes sense to ask you to explain the concept of thin places as it is the title of the book and so crucial to this absolutely so thin places um it's a very old celtic concept and it's um it alludes to the idea of places within landscape where you can feel like in the prologue where you're neither here or there you're not held by place or time they're kind of they're often referred to as liminal spaces. Um, you know, you've got it where you've stood somewhere and you've just, it's like you have a shiver or you, you, you just feel like you've been there before, even though maybe you haven't. Or you feel like you've never been there before, even though you've been there hundreds of times. Um, and in Celtic, in the Celtic worlds, um, the, you know, they might be stone circles or old sacred burial grounds or wells, you know, and they're the ones that are a bit more well known. But in the book, I look at the fact that um, somewhere can feel as thin as gossamer or as thin as a moth wing, even though it's it's not known as a sacred space. Like, for instance, it might be a gap in a hedge or it might be the top of a housing estate, you know, where you just experience something that's bigger than you Um. And you, you just, you're changed by it, I suppose. Um, yeah. I do think they exist around the world, but I think predominantly um, we would hear about them in sort of Celtic, in the Celtic world. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I um, Before I read your book, I looked up the concept of thin places. And the first thing I said was because... I, I've spent some time living in Donegal and I felt like, God, Donegal is such a thin place. Like, I understand that concept so inherently. And then I read your book and I was like, oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Now, it all makes sense. It's like the... And you got it. That's the thing. You, you, um, and you, I think you've put it across as well. You know, just that idea of, yeah, like the sense of belonging that can come in a place like that, um, and obviously you have a familial background that's based in the place as well. But I feel like even if you don't, people move to areas in Ireland and, and in Cornwall and in Wales and Scotland and they instantly feel like they've been taken in by the land as well as the people. So it's, I think it's an intriguing concept. Yeah, or maybe something to do with um, the, the layers of history being more tangible somehow because in a big city like London for example it's so busy and so much is happening all the time and there's so much history crammed in exactly but with like wider more rural spaces like the likes of of which there are many in Ireland I don't know it's like the the history is you can feel it more um and I, I was really interested in what you said about um something your grandfather said to you he called them skull places yeah skull places and a skull of a shay and I think that um there's a load of different elements that that could be you know so initially I thought they were kind of in reference to like some kind of a darkness but actually, since I've got older and since I suppose I've made a lot of peace with darkness anyway, I think I see them a bit more as literally bone places, as in places maybe where bones were once left or 
where you're a bit more aware of your own bones like places that that in a way people always say you know when when they if you read a lot of sites about thin places people talk about that feeling of being out of yourself but in the book I look a little bit at the fact that sometimes it can be the opposite it can make you feel completely in yourself like really in your really in your bones in a way so not this coming out but more like embedding more like that the place can actually and that's what can unsettle people sometimes in place that that's that idea of you can't get away from you in some places um yeah as you're saying that thinking of how uh this speaking about the deer and this sense of like i'm just a witness here and there's this like kind of leveling that happens so much in thin places where it's not this kind of hierarchy where it's like the human viewer is like the one with all the power in that situation. It's like taking that step back and like seeing yourself as stitched into it, a wider ecosystem with all these layers of history with the human and the non-human. It seems really crucial to the... Yeah, I'm really glad that that, that you that that's how you felt. And that means a lot to me to hear you felt that because that's something that I really did want to put across because I think any of us that write about um, the natural world there's a real um I think there's a real responsibility in how we yeah and how we put across and th- that it's not an us and them that we're I very much view myself as part of the same natural world that moths are part of or bog cotton or you know you know when someone has an upset stomach you know like it's all it's all part of the natural world and so in that leveling kind of trying to bring bring us all to a much more fair level um I think that's where the there's a there's room being made for real kind of really hopeful change um and I think it extends out so you know as soon as you as soon as you view something else has been on the same level as you that you're not above it then it does allow for a lot more like a, a lot more real kind of proper communication and come coming from somewhere like the north of Ireland where communication has been such a difficult area I think the the more ways that we can look at how things communicate and people communicate the better you know yeah I think as well like such an important part of thin places is the way that um your relationship to irish and coming to it as well as like the way in which irish has helped you to better understand that landscape seems to be really crucial and there's there's a quote that at one point if i can find it speak of how the irish language is rooted in a world in which the unseen is as real as the seen and how there is an understanding that the land and everything in the natural world are bright, breathing things. And I think, could you like explain that a bit further as it relates to Irish? And... Yeah, abs- absolutely, completely. So there are, from, you know, the unearthing that I've tried to do um, with my own past, um, what I've found is definite kind of parallels with this inability to be able to properly communicate. And I think that when when the Irish language was kind of taken away from a, a vast sweep of people on the island, it was more than just words that were taken away. It was the ability to actually define one's own self and 
how that self related to the others around that self and the landscape. So obviously in Irish, um, a lot of the place names that you'll find are completely directly giving the land and the things within the land, you know, real personhood, real like selfhood almost. So, you know, rocks become really important things and as do, you know, kind of groups of stone or um, branches on trees, like specific branches of trees, you know, come into place names. And I think that there's something about, in the Irish language, the this knowledge that there's so much that's ab- not above us, but like separate from us and that we can't hope to understand in just the way that the words work. So I know I, I mentioned to you earlier that a writer I really admire is called Michael Magan. And he's just written a book called 32 Words for Field. Um, and it's it explores the the way that the Irish language um, holds such power in a way that possibly like maybe indigenous languages do, but um, but that we, we can lose very easily. And when you lose the words for something, um, you're in a way you're running the risk of losing how you relate to the thing and then also how you relate to yourself. So for example, you know, the I suppose the way that I always try to think of it is that there's been so much loss already in Ireland, you know, loss of people, there's been so much poverty, so much has been stolen away. And that includes the language, but it goes deeper because when you remove a person's ability to to speak their truth, what you're silencing them in a way. And when you silence someone, you you take them out of the landscape that they're in. You also take them out of themselves in a way that's that's very un- that can be very unsettling. And through coming back, I say coming back to the Irish language because I, I do view it as a form of coming back, even though I'd never learned it before. You know, I only started learning in my thirties, but it did feel like a sense of coming back because it was obviously something that I view as being intrinsically part of my being and intrinsically my part of being in the landscape that I'm from yeah it's really powerful there is um I guess there's also a really big link in your book between literally not having the Irish words but also I guess having the words for your own trauma and how that feeds into memoir writing in general um and there's a bit where that you wrote that I really loved that said having the words changes everything and yeah I guess like I was wondering what you think about like the ability to name things and also how that relates to writing a memoir you know that like naming things for yourself that's that's a really that's a really sensitive question and um, thank you for asking it I do think that naming experience is probably one of the most important things that it's one of the most important um freedoms and steps into healing that we can give people across the world like not obviously not just in Ireland but you know across the entire world as soon as you give people back the ability to name what they've gone through it's almost like they've been carrying something I mean I I know I use in the book the idea of a of trauma as being like a black crow so it's something that you carry inside you and I know a lot of people who've 
who've experienced deep trauma and who have visualized something, something that they've been carrying around. And I think when you, when you can find the words to put your experience into an order, um, what it instantly does, of course, is it brings it out of you and it, it places it in the world that in a way gave you the trauma. So there's a kind of reflective, refractive thing going on, you know, um, in and out. And then when you begin to speak your trauma and begin to let go of it, um, obviously what happens then is you 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 feel like part of that burden is gone. But it, I think it runs a lot deeper and like memoir is incredible for this because we're all standing on the shoulders of each other when it comes to how we we move away from silence and into safe healing space. Um, and so the people who've come before me, the women who've come before me, but also the the writers from the North of Ireland who've come before me, the other memoir writers who've come before me, allowed me to be able to take my place in this kind of line, in a way, because we stand on each other's shoulders. And what I really hoped for the book was that in writing it and, it, and giving it away to the world, um, I really hoped that that would continue, that that line could continue and that the people who for whatever reason, have been forced into various forms of silence, might feel a bit more safe or a bit more um, drawn to sharing their experiences. Because I feel like the more that, with especially with memoir, the more that we actually write something down and make our mark, the more that that's, um, that's a thing that's accepted as, di- as dialogue. Um, there's something really, there's something really deep and moving in how that just, I know, I remember from when I was a teacher and if children were going through something really difficult, um, we would encourage them to write it down and we would maybe burn it in a, in a fire outside. And it does, I don't know if you've ever done it before, but it, it does, um, it does change how you react uh, or not how you react, how you, how you feel in relation to what you've gone through. It's I hate uh, people always ask me was it a cathartic book to write, and I I really hate I really hate that phrase, because it's um, I don't view it in that way at all. I think when anybody writes anything at all, um, there it's a two way thing because it's your book and you're writing it, but it's also not your book at all because you give it don't you and you you um you hope that it even if it just helps one person in one way you you hope that that happens well I think there's also a fear in naming something right like it's really powerful but it's it's often really scary as well to to fit to give something a name or to fix it yeah so I guess you know you're taking it out of yourself but it doesn't become any less frightening maybe it's more that you can just see it now it's really interesting because I think I think like you're you're really on you've got it there it doesn't become any less frightening um and actually yeah that's why the catharsis word is a funny one because you know anyone I've spoken to who's written a trauma book or, or you know a book about their own journey or whatever 
I think maybe what does happen is distance rather than catharsis. So you move slight, you're able to move yourself away from the events that you had felt for so long had really shaped you. And I think that has been really good for me that I've in, in through writing the book, um, I've, I've learned in a much more real and deep way that those events did not shape me necessarily. They did, but they also didn't. Um, because you're able to write it down and you're able to give it and then you're able to leave it <laughs> and um, you know choose to talk about it when you want with you know with the people that you want to talk about it with and um, but but the ultimate thing was the processing that had to happen before you wrote it I think isn't it the work like all writing happens in the moments when we're we're not holding a pen I think you know you know when I'm teaching a class like like a, a writing class I'll always say that that you should never feel guilty or beat yourself up about days or weeks or months where you don't write like before Thin Places I didn't write for a full year I didn't write a single word except my diary for a full year and I really beat myself up up about it and then as soon as I started to actually write the book I realized that that year was the most important year much more important than the writing much more important than the editing much more important than the publicity because that's where the work happened. Yeah, well, you're basically you're almost writing it in your head. You and are. then when you sit down yeah. to write, you've done the emotional mm. work and it just comes out. I think we call it, I think, I think there's a phrase for it. I think it's called like percolation, you know, or something. I think so. But um, Like it's kind of fermenting. Yes, fermenting. Exactly. Yeah, the big old sauerkraut of your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That we've all been making in the lockdown. Um, I think the crow is such a powerful metaphor and symbol. And there's like, like so many things in Finn places, the symbols hold lots of contradictions and lots of ambiguity. And I think with the crow, there's a real like intimacy to it. And what you're saying about like not liking the word catharsis when thinking about your book kind of makes sense because catharsis seems like it's something that then like is no longer part of you yes whereas like with the cr- the crow continues to follow you you throughout thin places and there's almost like a kind of intimacy and understanding between you and the crow in getting to understand your darkness as opposed to pushing it away completely that's a really intuitive reading of the book and not not everyone has had not everyone has got that so it's really lovely but yeah it, it definitely is that um it definitely was the, the I always thought I needed to ignore the crow and and my which the crow obviously represents like the entire darkness but then I did realize that as you said there's a form of intimacy there so making space I talk about making space at the table for him you know um inviting your uh inviting your sorrow and your trauma close by and sitting with it is actually from my experience a lot a much more healing thing to do um than to continue continuously bat it away you know there's um and really interestingly having you know visualizing visualizations like that um and the imagery that I did choose to to use throughout the book it is it's a delicate dance because it can just be really <laughs> it can feel like really gammy or you know like really overdone and sometimes I read a passage now and I'm like oh <laughs> you know I'm cringing but um but the, but I think um 
I think ultimately, I guess it was a tool. I guess it was a... We try not to talk about the tools of writing. It seems to be like not a very done thing anymore. <laughs> but I think, and specifically in memoir, but I do think it was probably one of the tools that I used to be able to access the experiences of my life um, in order to put, as you said, um, in order to put them on the page and and completely as I guess you would, as I imagine you would guess since writing the book, um, it there have been other birds in my life. <laughs> it's it's it, the crow is is not the is not the most important one anymore. It's a very intriguing thing. I was thinking as well, in the way in which, um, like grief and time work in thin places, and uh, I'm gonna just read a little quote again, just because it says it better than I can. So quote. Grief is a country that has no definite borderlines and that recognises no single trajectory. It's a space that did not exist before your loss and that will never disappear from your map. And reading that kind of absolutely kind of nailed it for me in terms of like what grief does. It's like it, the, the space that it carves open and everything that follows has complete kind of distinction from anything that came before. And I know everyone's grief is different and differentiated, but, but then it's often so outside of language and yet language is often the, the best way we can have to connect with others our grief. So I, yeah, I wondered like how you went about finding form through writing to, to write about this grief, these grief, grief and trauma and these kind of things. The, yeah, you know, I've, interestingly, I found grief the most difficult topic, um, in the book to really find proper language for um and i and i think that that's a collective human experience because i think that you know we we can very easily talk about we seem very adept at talking about love um talking about hatred um talking about talking about violence is actually quite an easy thing to do um sorrow as well but grief is so specific it's um it is i do view grief as a creature and a, and a place and a carved out space they're the the most overwhelming images and and they still they still feel that way and i do think that grief and time are really integrate integrately linked um because there is there is this idea of like nothing will ever be the same again after grief even when you begin to kind of move forward from it and reshape your um your memories of the time or of what happened it's almost like there there will be i i remember um i remember someone talking to me about it and they were um they were a weaver and I remember um thinking about there's you know, I don't know if you've read the Odyssey, but that bit where Penelope, so Penelope is, is um weaving. She's she's kind of killing time um so that she doesn't have to choose which suitor she will go for that are all coming to try and take her husband's place because she knows Odysseus, I think, is gonna come back, but she's still grieving. She doesn't really know if he's coming back. And I remember, you know, being really, being really young, like a teenager, when I read that scene, and I remember instinctively, like feeling that, um, would that tapestry hold 
even when she ripped it all back every night, would would the material or would the would the tapestry hold something that she had put into it every single day, that grief and that worry and that changed time? And I do think that time can be like a tapestry. So you've got this little blip where you've had this it can grief can feel like a really long time even though it's only a few in the first few days of grief can feel like years or years can feel like days so I think there's I think there's um so much about it that we don't understand and we all try and find our our images and I do think in trying to find the images we we work through a lot of um a lot of the bigger questions like you know, because it's not just dark, is it? Because in grief, we've got um, we've got these kind of glistening, iridescent, iridescent memories of the person or the time that we're grieving, or the part of us that we're grieving. Because grief is not just for a person. You know, it can be for like so many things, um, and it's not all dark. You know, otherwise we wouldn't be grieving, if there wasn't some some beauty in the in the loss in the thing that was lost we wouldn't be grieving yeah and i think and i think as well like with the time where there's this like constant like mutations of how the grief works across time but then also how thinking back to thin places how time in in thin in the thin places the concept but also in your thin places the book it it has such and maybe this connects as well to to irish language and irish folklore and mythology that comes through so much is that time isn't linear in the book or in these thin places there's this cyclical as well as like multi-layered dimension completely to it, right? yeah totally and that that's a very that's a very irish idea um a very ancient irish idea and in a lot of um in a lot of like old songs or old children's tales there is this idea of um the mourning period of being a year full year and a day and um, that that has a, a obviously that has layers of meaning and what that's saying is you you need to go through all of the entire cycle of life again and then start again because that's how that's how um that's how healing works in that it's cyclical and it's, but it's also not because it can feel like a line that you're held in place by um, and it, it can also meander like a river. Um, and I think that time is like that. And we all know, like, through the pandemic, I mean, time is an oddly boned creature. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not acting in the way that we, we ever thought it acted or we so readily accepted, but it's actually acting in the way it really is. That's how time is. It's just that... So, our experience has changed to allow us to actually creep in closer to the reality of this uh, human construct that has been layered on top of the natural concepts of the seasons and growth and the organic decay of things because we're all decaying and it, it's, a, it's actually not, not a depressing or a bad thing at all. It's actually hand in hand with living. It makes me think of, I had a, a friend once who, um, like, when we were very young, he, he had a new partner and I was kind of like, oh, how's it going? And he was like, oh, well, I don't think you can ever say until it's been a year because you have to see someone in every season. I totally agree. And I always think about that, like, because mm. people are different in mm. different 
Composite. Oh, that is so beautiful. I I I, re- I really feel that. Um, I really do, and I, I think um, I think it's really, I think it's also really interesting how we relate to. So I talk in the book about just different cycles, not just about the seasonal cycles or the Celtic year. But I also mention at one point in the book about the this concept of the thing called your Saturn returns, which is that when you um when you turn twenty-eight, um you can lots of people experience a, a real kind of cusp moment in their life. Well women, a lot of women do. Um and I remember learning it learning about it on my Steiner teacher training degree and we went around the class and it was a big circle and literally everybody there could just pinpoint the moment at that age, either 27, 28 or 29, kind of in that little grouping of years where everything changed completely for them. And it really it kind of blew my mind that we've got these very specific moments in time that hold a lot of power that we maybe don't even necessarily realise that's Sounds kind of airy fairy, I know, but but what do we know? <laughs> you know, I just turned twenty nine, but I would say when I turned twenty seven, my life changed yes. completely, and you could yeah. feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your and your relationship, I remember you saying your relationship with the concept of home had changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, and that, and I, I, I think that's a massive part of it. Um, the sense of belonging, the sense of home. Um, because actually we're in a way at that age we're coming back home to the person we were when we were born because it's so basically it's a you know the way it takes our son a year or it it takes it takes you 28 years to be back in the position that 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 Saturn was in um, which is obviously a close planet to us when we were born so it can be really yeah it kind of makes sense to me I don't know. <laughs> well, it it's linked to um something that I found really like moving and true about your book was when you described kind of like the inherited feeling of displacement and all that generational trauma within Irish families and that sense of like placelessness and and where does that go? Exactly. And how can you feel anchored in a way? This idea of inherited trauma is really interesting because you, you might think that you're far away from something or that your life has moved on or that you're in a different place to the, the place where your family were. But it, it, it does it still shows up. Yes. I guess. It I think it does. I think um, you know, if you it's that idea of treatment and cure. Um and if you if you don't cure, if you're just kind of masking over something or if you're just taking a, a, a tablet for something instead of dealing with the actual problem, then it's never really going to go away. You know, there's that really quite moving image um, of a row of matches and one is lit and then you and they're all kind of falling on each other and then you remove one match and the whole thing stops. And I think that's kind of <clears throat> represents that it does just take one person to move away from that continuous cycle of trauma or abuse or victim mentality. It just takes one person to step outside, to step away from it. And that that can be enough to sort of stop that continual cycle. And in places where people have stayed, 
and I've just allowed it to continue and the ripples to just keep going through families and through communities and through places. It takes longer maybe for someone to heal what they've gone through. But in stepping outside of it, you've you've got the room to look and to actually look with with maybe more compassionate eyes about what happened where you lived or in your family or even in your friendship group or in your community. And I think that what we're seeing again and again and again recently is this narrative of people of people stepping out, you know, and just and I'm 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 glad. I guess if you are that person it carries a lot of weight as well though. It's not an that then you have to carry the all the contradictions. Yeah. And it's a lonely it's a lonely place, I think, for a lot of people as well. You know, you um because there could kind of can't really be any going back from deciding to take a stand against something that has been hurting you or or something that you just know is inherently wrong. I wonder whether Carrie um this might be a nice moment to read a passage from it's still quite near this uh, beginning of Finn Places, but it's kind of holds a lot of this terror and beauty in it in terms of uh, your childhood growing up in Derry. Yes, absolutely. At the age of eight, Beatrix Potter was already studying and recording a wide variety of creatures in a sketchbook she herself had made. She was particularly drawn to the delicate form of insects, becoming a keen amateur entomologist at a young age. Potter made frequent visits to the Natural History Museum to sketch their insect collection. Then she would return home where she learned to prepare slides of specimens to view under a microscope. At the age of eight, in February 1992, I heard, in very hushed voices, the news of a mass shooting in Belfast. Members of the UDA, a loyalist paramilitary group, opened fire, killing five people and wounding another nine. All the victims were local Catholic civilians. Less than an hour after this, my dad's video van, our family's sole source of income on our impoverished Protestant housing estate, was driven through British army checkpoints. My father was at the wheel of the van, under the enforced direction of armed loyalist paramilitaries. He has never, to this day, spoken to anyone about the words the unwanted passengers said to him, about how it felt to be told what to do, where to drive, by someone carrying a loaded gun, someone who could take your life at any moment they chose. When he made it home, nothing felt like it had before he left. Nothing has ever felt the same since. I knew something bad had happened because my dad didn't go out that night in the van. He didn't go out again for quite a long time. My memories of that year are fairly hazy as things went from bad to worse politically in Derry. But I do know that in that same year, at the same age as Beatrix Potter, I too was given my own microscope. Suddenly, in that concrete garden on a council estate in a city tearing itself to shreds, another world opened up and let me come in. 
I hope you never find yourself in a situation where you need to protect a child from witnessing bloodshed in the very streets on which they have no choice but to live. But if you ever should, I urge you, find books about wild creatures for them. Find them a microscope, a magnifying glass, anything at all that helps the unknown make sense. It doesn't matter how broken the surroundings may be, how bombed out, how terrifying every single bit of it all may be. Just find them a way to sit in muck, as creepy crawlies do their do, as bees buzz through holes and concrete walls, as spiders build webs on empty coal bunkers, under a sky that, no matter how grey and uncertain, holds room for butterflies, moths, dragonflies, and things too hard to find words for. Well, thanks for that. It's, yeah, holds so much terror and beauty. And I feel like this, for me, is so why your nature writing and the kind of ecology that your nature writing is part of, which is such a refute of like the small C pastoral ideal nature writing of like white middle class writers, male writers of the past. What was the role of the more than human world in your childhood and your ways of surviving? Really, really central, I think. I think um, if I, you know, without kind of sounding over the top, I think, you know, it, it literally dragged me through. Um, and I think we're in, a, like, as you so sensitively said, we're in this very funny dynamic when it comes to nature writing currently, because there has been a real move thankfully, towards making space for all of these really important voices that, you know, are much more marginalised than me. You know, I'm still a white, you know, I've had it much easier than a lot of other people I know here writing about their experiences. But we, we have to, there's a very delicate dance between how we talk about the natural world. Um, and I'm, I'm very wary of even using words like saying that it healed me or that it provided solace because I don't want to I don't want it to be sort of felt in any way like you know you're you're using the natural world but it's much more like I was saying earlier that I viewed myself so much as a part of it and I still do that it was almost like the natural world was a part a part of me a, a part of a way in which like in viewing the small things like ladybirds and butterflies and that kind of thing I wonder if there was a sense of me feeling like like I belonged or that I was safe in a in a day-to-day life that sometimes wasn't necessarily safe for a child um so yeah there's a lot of and there's been a lot of nature writing that has kind of been these people going into the landscape and kind of almost conquering <laughs> or something um whereas I think a lot of us know that it's it's not really like that like it's it's um it's a much more delicate dance it's a much more sensitive thing and you know there are some incredible writers who are exploring that more and more from from viewpoints that we've just never really heard before you know like obviously I'm thinking of the willow herb review and you know like what Jessica Lee is doing there is just really like so inspiring um and voices that we're beginning to hear that 
you know, have, have always been in the natural landscape, you know, like <laughs> they've always been there, but we just haven't had room somehow um, or haven't, haven't made the space. So I think, yeah, the, the more we can kind of move nature right into a, a fairer, just a much more realistic space, I think the better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like what you're saying there as well, like even talking about nature healing you, it's like a transaction, a transaction or it's extractive, isn't it? And often like those those writers that we're talking about who have this few of humans not being in nature have been what have been those that have thought about land as something to be owned Completely. or something to be con- conquered totally. like you say a separateness there whereas in reality the the peoples of the world that um respect the land the most are um people of the world to view themselves as as part of the land and that the land is equal to them rather than something that they own or are above and it, and it's heartbreaking that generally they're the people who have experienced the, the most violence from you know white 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 people who yeah um acted and still act in ways that are just completely abhorrent both to people and land and you know nature in general we should point out as well for everyone listening that we'll put references to willow herb and these kind of uh, avenues that we're talking about and could you talk a little bit about the amazing spread the word pocket guide to nature writing that you wrote because that covers some of this as well which i loved writing that so much (laughs) i just that was one of the the one of the best things i think i've ever done and i'm i've i really yeah it, it it felt really good to be able to explore nature writing in that way because you know we yeah I spent a lot of time on it and what I realised when I was writing that guide was that we we have generically viewed the natural world as something that we're separate from and of course the a lot of the writing that can come out you know that comes out of that is obviously going to be us and them you know and but thankfully what what I'm finding again and again and again is that and in particular, it seems to be women writers um, who are coming to the fore more and more. So thinking of people like um, Laurette Savoy, Robin Wall Kimmerer, you know, women who um, who tread the earth really softly. Um, and and what what learning there is there, you know, that that's vast. That's vast learning. You know, how we I guess how we view there as being space for for all of us all of the human and all of the non-human as well and then how we write about that is that's where the real um challenge comes in I think because I think nature writing has really kind of exploded hasn't it in the last in the last while and I'm I'm all yeah I for a long time I didn't I don't know if I really would have I still probably wouldn't really call myself a nature writer it's I think um, I say I, I write about nature, literature and place. And I think I also now, I've found myself like really weirdly recently I've been writing about kind of odd things. Like I've been writing about sound quite a lot recently and, and things that are maybe not necessarily um, 
what I would have written about before. But I think that, again, that just shows that we're all just, we're all just living the, in the best way that, we're all trying to just live in the best way that we can. And writing is, for me, the best way that we can explore how we interact. So say like we're having this conversation and I've been really enjoying it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm eight months pregnant and I can feel inside my tummy, you know, um, this little creature kind of dancing about because it's linked with me and, and it, it can obviously sense that, um, you know, I'm in a good space with, with talking to you. When I wrote that guide and, and, and it, cause it really changed how I interacted with, with my own writing, I think, because I, I realized that increasingly the challenge is to make space. The challenge is to listen and to, to listen to people that have been silenced for a long time to give them the space to come into the table um, and to listen to the things that we think don't actually talk to us, but that do. But yeah, I mean, I heard this incredible documentary um, on the radio the other day, and um, it was about the sound of the, the sound of the tide. And it was saying, you know, I think it's, it's on the BBC site if anybody wants to listen to it. But it was saying, you know, um, like if we give personhood to the non-human, um, then what, how, how does the non-human world speak? And it was saying that, you know, that things like things that are made in, you know, in the surface, things that are made in the surface, underneath the surface of the sea and the seabed um, are kind of the the thoughts of the tide. And it really blew, it really blew, it really blew my mind. I think we're all going to see a bit more of a move towards you know, what Alice Oswald's been trying to do for a long time, this idea of seeing the, hearing what's going on behind the idea of a thing, you know. So she always talks about the, you know, when she's thinking about flowers, because she's a, a gardener, obviously, as well. And she wants to get behind even the colour of the flower and the form of it. She's trying to get to even like pat even below the root I guess um so I think that's my that's where my focus has shifted even more so from having written thin places like really just trying to get to that that level that kind of the hubris of things if people are interested as well I've just finished reading the most exquisite proof um of a book that's coming in August with Canongate by um the the winner of um the Nan Shepherd Nature Writing Prize Nina Minka Powell's has just written this gorgeous book called oh she's incredible called Small Bodies of Water and in her in this essay collection she just oh it blew my mind she she weaves um she weaves things together she weaves the inner life with the kind of the the outer historical experience and then you've got these glistening moments of you know um, dreams of whales and you know and uh, yeah a really incredible like incredibly moving creative non-fiction uh, yeah I guess one of the things in your book that you write about so much is water and how it it holds a contradiction because it's a it's a place of borders and it's a place of freedom and it's a place of danger or oblivion as well it feels like it holds all of those things absolutely yeah I view it as the 
embodiment of everything. I view the, in particular, the sea um, as being, as holding literally everything else inside it. So that when we, almost like, you know, when you hear about when you take um, a, p- a particular drug, it will enhance whatever mood you're already in. If you're down, it will make you more down. Or if you're happy, it will give you a high. I think the sea can work in that way. So when we enter the sea, we we bring our whole self with us. And, and in a way that you simply cannot you cannot step away from and actually the the that's really difficult to write about and the 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 person that I've read who's written about that the best is Rebecca Tomosh um she in her book with her book um strangers out with Makina she there's this part and it's a really a really small section where she talks about um going in for a swim in in Galway Bay and she realizes that she's crying um, she hadn't she hadn't realized until I think she got out um but that literally what made that happen was her entering the body of water not that it brought her back into herself or not that it made her more herself but just that there was she couldn't stop it because that's that's what the sea is the sea um the sea knows us we know it we're of it it's of us and I think that, that that holds a really deep power. And as you've said, you know, it can either be a very scary thing, a very, you know, an overwhelming thing, or it can be a soothing thing, or it can be in between, or it can be all of those things. Um, and I there's a reason why during the pandemic more people have been drawn to the sea than probably however many people's generations. We're being called to the thing that is most of us at a time when we've been made to feel least of us because we're not acting in ways that we're we've built our dialogue around our narrative around maybe we can talk a little bit about i mean thinking of tides and returns and that's such a crucial part of the journey of thin places this kind of the need to return to the site of trauma or the, the roots in order to to heal but also kind of it's not just to heal it's also to grow it seems like in thin places so can you can you talk something if the definitely definitely and again very intuitive reading so I definitely did reach a point where I knew that I had no hope of properly just still being here um if I didn't return to particular places and really return to them so as in go there and allow whatever came over me to come and be worked through and obviously Derry was one of those places because it was the place where I would have experienced you know huge levels of trauma but even still you know I am I do still feel called back to places like even now even after having done a, a large amount of healing so like I think I was saying to you just earlier right now I'm feeling really drawn back to Bristol um, and part of that is, I suppose, the fact that, again, Bristol was a real kind of cusp place for me. Um, it was the place where I really properly began my healing journey. And it's that circular thing, isn't it, where you... Healing is it's an, an ongoing thing. So I, I suppose um, maybe why I'm being drawn back there is that 
I need to see how I'll be in that space now that I've changed, but I also haven't changed. I'm also still me. So I suppose, yeah, that's a, yeah, it is, I guess it's like a tidal thing where you, you, we all ebb and flow um, and you can push against it or you can give into it and you can be taken out as far as you need to and then brought back in and what comes back in with you is out of your control isn't it because that's how that's how healing works um when we open up one part of our experience to try and fix it all these other things come along that we maybe didn't even realize we've been carrying and i think that that's a that's a a lifelong thing you know um I think we've all probably heard as well that, you know, during the last year, people who thought that they had no issues with like particular parts of their childhood or particular past relationships, all of a sudden they find themselves dreaming about this ex-partner like all the time. And they thought they had, you know, or friends that they lost contact with or, you know, we're we're living in this moment of almost anticipatory grief where for a full year we've... um we've not been able to fill our days and our heads with the stuff that normally we would use to to block things or to kind of numb them um and obviously some people I know I was reading a statistic like some people are drinking way more than they ever had in their life before which is a way of numbing things but then when they come out of that they're potentially going to find that there's a lot of stuff they've been carrying around that they're going to really have to deal with. Yeah, I I feel like we could just keep talking for hours and hours. Um, But it would be lovely if um, we ended with another reading from you, Kerry. Absolutely. There is a time for everything. For sowing, planting, harvesting. A time for holding on and a time to let go. A time for sorrow and a time for healing. More so, there is simply time. There is time for it all. We still have time to step in or out of places, of relationships, of thought processes, of our own selves. Sometimes the snow will still be here on St Bridget's Day and sometimes we will have a year without it coming at all. There will be years when the autumn trees seem more vibrant, more sublime than we ever remember them being before. There will be years when we have suffered so much that we can't pick out one season from the other, never mind one day. Days when we cannot imagine ever feeling okay again, thinking that we have taken enough of it all, enough already, enough. Then a change in the wind, the first bluebell, the smell of snow in the sky. The moment courses on and everything has shape-shifted. Everything is okay again, more than okay, maybe even. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online.
We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme. <laughs>